Are you where you want to be? I don't mean physically, because I hope the answer is yes, because I want you here. I'm glad you're here. We're glad you're here. Are you where you want to be spiritually? Maybe with your mental health or emotional health, because all of us, I think, if the answer is no, it's probably actually a good thing. Because if you're satisfied with where you are, that means you're not taking steps that God may be calling you to take. So I I hope that you could say, no, actually, I I know I'm here, but I want to be there. The question, what is keeping you from going from here to there? What's keeping you from taking your next steps towards Jesus? Well, it, it could be, you know, your wife doesn't pay enough attention to you. Or maybe you're saying if you're a wife, if he was just not such, there's no way I'm finishing that sentence for you. If my kids didn't have this blowout, like they have a blowout when they're two and when they're teenagers, it looks different, it smells the same. If my boss just wasn't so oppressive or if I didn't have this financial crunch, then I could get from here to there, no problem. Often, when we realize, like, I, want, I don't want to be here, I want to be there, we tend to point the finger at someone or something that is keeping us from our desired destination. In my experience, it's not what's out there that's the biggest barrier. It's what's right between your shoulders. It's something that you hold in your chest. It's, it's part of what makes you, you. What I'm talking about is, and this is true for all of us, We want autonomy. I want control over my life, and if I was really honest, I kind of want some control over your life too. I want to be able to tell you what to do. Here's a little something something about me. I'm actually a very uh, compliant person because I'm I'm a pleaser. That doesn't mean I'm pleased with you. When I look, I'm pleased with you because people tell me all the time, you got to read this book. And my head goes, yeah. And my heart goes, no. Like, I would probably read the book if it, you didn't tell me I had to read the book. You got it, you need to. No, I don't. And if you want to test just at what level you are, here's a simple test. Do you think that the speed limit is the fastest that everyone should go or the slowest that anyone in front of you should go? Not a bad test. We... It's kind of a weird thing, too. We want control, and the more we grab control in here, the less we have control out there. And sometimes, if we can get rid of our own need for controlling everything, we would be much better at controlling what's actually in the way of getting from here to there. Are are you pleased with where you are? Are you satisfied being where you are? What is it in us that keeps, for example, a mother from apologizing to a child? What is it that keeps couples from counseling? What is it that keeps an addict from admitting that she has a problem? What is it that keeps a father from owning the problem in the family? It is one word, one word, pride. It is this dangerous thing in us that's keeping us from our desired destination. And that's what I want to talk about today. In fact, I want to tell you a story that is all about pride. 
But before I get into the story, it's in the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 5, if you want to turn there. While you're getting to 2 Kings 5, let me just quote one verse from Jesus. There's dozens of verses about pride in the Bible. Here's what he said. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And you're going to hear in the story about a man named Naaman who had a lot of pride and a lot to be proud of, honestly. And in the first part of the story, it was his pride that kept him from his desired destination. But when he swallowed his pride, when he buried it, then God exalted him. It begins in 2 Kings 5 and verse 1. Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man, which is actually kind of an official title, inside of his master and highly regarded because through him, the Lord had given victory to Aram. That is what we would call Syria today. They were on again, off again, enemies of Israel. So this guy has a lot going for him, but he was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Uh, leprosy is a skin disease. It doesn't sound that horrible. It actually is very horrible. And for you people who love like gross descriptions of medical conditions, you can read all about it in Leviticus 13. You'll read about scabs and boils and pus, white things and red things, little hair coming out of the follicles. And you'll read about uh, scaly skin. You'll even read about, it's kind of like mildew that was underneath the skin. It's nasty. And it's also highly contagious. This biblical leprosy could not only be passed from human to human, but through objects. So leather, for example, leather belt or a leather purse, anything could take the leprosy and touch another person, and it was contagious. It could pass through ceramics, so if you used a pot or a dish. It could pass through walls of houses. So anyone who got leprosy was separated from the people closest to them. And so Naaman, though he is a great man with great titles and great accolades, he was not where he wanted to be because he separated from the people he cared most about. And I don't know why the little girl in his house even offered the solution, because he was an enemy of Israel and she was a little Israelite girl. Well, why isn't she in Israel then? Because she had been kidnapped. I mean, this part of the awful things in war. Verse two, now the bands of raiders of Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of leprosy. Now the chances of Naaman going to Samaria, unless it was on a military raid, are very slim. But he's got a problem. And he's ready to swallow his pride and go to a prophet in a foreign country, in enemy lines, if he could possibly get healed. So he goes to his boss, the king, a king of Aram, and he says, hey, th there's a slight chance. Like, like this girl in my house, she's Israelite, she said, if I go to Samaria, there's a prophet there that could heal me. And the king is as invested in Naaman's healing as Naaman was. And why wouldn't he be? He is his bodyguard, but he's at a distance. He needs to be with the troops, but he's at a distance. So the king wants him healed for professional reasons as well as for friendship, I'm sure. So the king writes a letter to the king of Israel, 
and says, hey, I need you to do me a favor. I got a guy, he needs to be healed. He didn't just write a letter, he gave him hard, cold cash. Why? Well, because if you're going to enemies and asking for help, you need to call it a bribe, uh, call it tribute, call it taxes, whatever you wanna call it, it was a bunch. In fact, let's put pen to paper here. Here's what verse four and five say, that there were 10 talents of silver, that is 150,000 US dollars in modern terms. And, and then you've got six shekels of gold, that is nine million US dollars. And, and then you've got 10 sets of clothes that I'm thinking, like, what is that? Well, these are expensive clothes, right? These, this is Nordstrom of Israel, okay? Who knows, maybe Elijah needed some retail therapy, but he's got this bribe totaling 9,165,000 US dollars. And he goes into foreign territory. And the king of Israel reads the letter. The, the letter, verse six, that he took to the king of Israel read, with this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Why didn't he go to Elisha? The little girl, she didn't say go to the king. She said go to the prophet. But granted, the prophet was like this mangy, wild man, bald prophet. Well, the Bible didn't actually say he was wild or mangy. I'm just making that up. But my guess is as good as yours. It does, however, say he was bald. Now, that's important because he was bald, hence gorgeous. <laughs> Why... Why don't you go to the prophet instead of to the king? Here's a rule of life, you know it's true, that prideful people will overlook helpful people because they've ignored the God above them. When you can't see the people around you because you've ignored the God above you, then the biggest barrier from here to there is not the obstacle itself, but actually the pride that you hold tight against your chest. And when the king of Israel read the letter, it says, verse seven, as soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Leprosy was seen as like a living death sentence. Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of leprosy, see how he's trying to pick a fight with me? What do you mean pick a fight with you? Why do you think he's trying to pick a fight when you just received a letter from him asking for your help? Because that's how you picked a fight with one king to another. You can actually go to museums around the world and find these ancient letters in the archives of the Middle East, and it's one king asking another king for a favor that he knows the king either will not or cannot meet the demands. So if I ask you for a favor... I can't just go beat you up, that's rude. But if I ask you a favor and you say no, oh, now we're enemies. Or if I ask you a favor and you say yes, but you can't give me the favor, now we're enemies. So he's pick, he thinks he's picking a fight. But again, why did the king of Israel assume that the king of Aram was asking him to do the healing? One word, one word, pride. When you are a proud person, you will overlook helpful people around you because you have ignored the God above you. That was the situation of both the king of Aram and the king of Israel. But Elisha heard 
about the king tearing his robes. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored, and you will be cleansed. Good news, right? No. Naaman is peeved. Because Elisha, who is just a mangy, bald prophet, doesn't even leave his house. He just sent an underling with a message about washing in the Jordan River seven times. That's not pretty arbitrary, isn't it? Seven times? Why seven? And why the Jordan River? The Jordan River was, it was a mud puddle. I mean, back in Syria, they have way better rivers. They sit at the, at, the, at the base of these snow-capped mountains, and the water is clear and cool and good fishing, and you're telling me that I need to go jump in the Jordan River? No, not doing it. Actually, have you seen the Jordan River? It is a muddy creek. It, we, we would call it, a, in Tennessee, a creek. It's just a muddy body, body of water. It's not even that big. It's like as wide as this stage is. And if you step foot into the Jordan River, your feet will sink three inches in mud. It is not a beautiful place. It is not a place that a dignitary would go to bathe. But it is the place that God sent him because of what the Jordan River means. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought, that, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of leprosy. He wants a little, a little circus show, a little magic, a, a little hoopla-la. Oh, Naaman, why, I'm so honored that you would come to see little old me, the prophet. Come, here, come over here, let me, let me wave my hand, let me dance around a little bit, maybe throw some incense at you. That's what Naaman wants, because he's a big deal. He wants Elisha to make a big deal out of him. And he doesn't, just sends him a servant. So he's, he's ready to walk away. You know, I, I think that a lot of us have an overinflated view of ourselves. And sometimes the overinflated view comes out as arrogance, and sometimes it comes out as insecurity. And what happens if we're either arrogant or insecure, we will not take our next steps because of one word, pride. I think a lot of you right now, you need to be in a group. But when you think about the group, you're either like too good for the group, like I don't need a group. I don't need to talk about my feelings. I don't need people giving me counsel. I can do it myself. We want control. And the more control you have of this, the less control you will have of that. And so I, I don't really need to group. Or it might manifest with you as insecurity. Man, if I go to the group, I don't know the Bible like they know, and I'm going to be embarrassed, and I don't want to be embarrassed, so I'm just not going to go. Or, or maybe your next step is serving. <laughs> like you, we keep telling you, it's going to be really good for you, and it, w- it will be really good for you. But you go, yeah. You know, if, you're, if your particular pride manifests as arrogance, you'll say, yeah. If you had something that really took advantage of all my skill set, why, sure, I would serve. But if I'm not going to be on stage, if I'm not going to be noticed, then why? Like, I've got better things to do. Or maybe it's insecurity. 
Like if I'm around those people, maybe they'll judge me or maybe I won't be able to keep up or, or I don't know. I don't want people to, to look at me funny. When your pride has control of your life, you lose control of what's out there. But when you kill your pride and lose control of control, then you have more control of what's out there. That was the, this is the story of, of Naaman. And I think I want to say to you what Naaman's friends said to him. Verse 13. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? It's a simple thing. It's not hard. But so many of us think, well, if I'm so important, then my sin is really big. And if my sin is really big, then my repentance has to be like really big. I gotta pay a lot of money, or I gotta flog myself a hundred times, or I gotta say so many Hail Marys. No, you don't. The beauty of Christianity is the only religion in the world where your salvation is based upon what God has done, not what you do. And if you think you're that important, if you hold this pride, it is going to keep you. More than what's out there, it is going to keep you from your desired destination. Ashley told a story last week, and I loved how it ended, where he sat his girls down and he said, has God been faithful to us? And at first they said 10 out of 10 times, and then his middle daughter came back and said, no, it's not 10 out of 10. God has been faithful to us 11 out of 10. God is faithful 11 out of 10. He's faithful before you even ask him. He's faithful to give you what you don't even know that you need. But God's faithfulness sometimes can't enter our lives because we haven't been obedient. Elisha told Naaman, you need to dip in the Jordan River seven times, seven times. Why seven? Doesn't that seem a little arbitrary? Seven? It's actually not arbitrary. I know this is maybe foreign to us as Americans, but in the Bible, they often gave symbolic value to numbers. The number three represented God. You know, holy, 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 or Father, Son, Spirit. So three is God. Four is humanity. Think of that, the, the four winds and the four compass points. And it manifests like 40 days and 40 nights or uh, 40 years in the wilderness. When you combine four and three, you get seven. It is God coming to us and doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. The seven days of creation, God came to us and he did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Seven in the Bible is a time when we let God enter our world and we just do what he said. God will be faithful 11 out of 10 times if you are obedient seven out of seven times. And you, some of you know, like you know your next step. And maybe it's to server, maybe it's a group, or maybe it's tithing. And you, you come to your next step and you go, okay, I'm going to dip in the Jordan River. And finally, <laughs> Naaman decided, okay, I'm going to dip in the Jordan River. And I wasn't there, so I don't know for sure, but I imagine when he dipped in the first time, nothing happened. Like he came back out, he still has leprosy, which is what you expect, right? You've only dipped one time. Dip in another time. Check your skin. Nothing. Third time. I expect like some change because I'm like almost halfway there, right? Nothing. 
He dips a fourth time, and now I can imagine he would be a little upset. Like, I'm doing the thing, but nothing is happening. And I, I can't help but think there's someone here right now that you say, I've been doing the thing. Like, I have prayed four days in a row. Nothing. Like, I've been to church now four weeks in a row. Nothing. Been tithing for four months. Nothing. God, when am I going to see something? He dips in the fifth time. Nothing. Sixth time. Now he's starting to spin because it's like, huh, I'm, doing, I'm doing the thing, but I don't see any result. And all of a sudden, he went down the seventh time and he came up. The Bible says his skin was as pure as a baby's skin. When you are obedient to God seven out of seven times, he will be faithful to you 11 out of 10 times. And if you're not willing to lay down your pride and do what God has asked you to do. Don't expect his faithfulness. It's not because he's not faithful. It's because you are faithless. It is not that when you do the thing he's asked you to do that you somehow earn his favor. It's not like you're gonna build a stairway to heaven. It is that you are opening up your life for the goodness of God to enter in. And when it did, what happened to Naaman is extraordinary. He came for a healing and he left with a God. The destination he thought he wanted was healing, but the destination he got was the one true God. He walked away with way more. Why? Because he was obedient through his humility to do what God had asked him to do. And so his reaction in verse 15 and Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. And Elisha said, no way. I would say the same thing to you. You cannot buy favor of God. You cannot earn favor of God. You can express your gratitude, sure, but you cannot buy it, you cannot earn it. Uh, uh, Naaman made another mistake, and I think this is, this is kind of humorous, actually. Verse 17, he said, Please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry for your servant, and will never again make an, a burnt offering and sacrifice to any other god but the Lord. <laughs> he's, he's wanting to take earth from Israel back to Syria. Why? Because then he can stand on that sacred ground and make a sacrifice that will be pleasing to God. And some, some of us think the same thing. Like, when I come to one of the CCB campuses, like, if I pray here, surely it's a direct line to heaven because this is sacred ground. No, it's not. It, it's not the buildings. It is the obedience that lead to the blessing of God. We're, we're having baptisms on all our campuses. I promise you, that water, it's tap water. It's the same thing you drink at home. There's nothing magical. About, oh, we throw some chlorine in it, but it's, there's nothing magical about the water itself, but it is sanctified by your faith. That's what makes it special. Other than that, it's just a muddy crick, but our faith gives it life. And what I, what I love about the end of this verse, he says, I will never again make any burnt offering to any other God but the Lord. What he wanted was a healing. What he got was a God. 
And look, I know some of you are desperate for a healing and you're begging God. And I hope you get it. I really do. But if you get a healing and you don't get God, you're still not at your destination. Some of you think, my finances are a mess, and if God would just bless me, and you, what you want is a job, or what you want is a raise. And God could give you that, but that's not your destination. Your destination is the heart of God himself. And some of you are thinking, if, if he could just fix my marriage, or at least fix her, he might. But if he doesn't, that doesn't mean you're not at the desired destination. We're, we're not after a healing or a dollar sign. We're not after peace on this earth or even unity in our family. Jesus said himself, I've come not to bring peace but a sword, and I will divide family five against three and three against two, and in my family, that's exactly the division. I know that following Jesus doesn't always give you a blessing. In fact, sometimes it will complicate things. It did for Naaman. The last thing he says to Elijah he says, but may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Ramon to bow down, uh, and, and he's leaning on my arm, he's his bodyguard, he had to lean on him, and I, I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. It's not always easy following the Lord. And some of you, if you get baptized today, that, that may not make your marriage better. It could make it worse may not bring unity to your children or your in-laws. It might make it worse. It might not make things easier at work. It actually might make it worse. But if your desired destination is the heart of God, then the one thing that is keeping you away from your desired destination most is pride. It's been a couple decades ago, I preached this sermon. It was really a huge moment in my life. I preached this sermon at church. There's about 1,000 people in the audience, so just one room, and I'm on the stage. The sermon was about letting go of guilt from a past sin. Like, Jesus has forgiven you, let it go. And in fact, other people have also forgiven you, but somehow you can't forgive yourself. That's a common problem. And so I had, uh, I'd had them put a 50-gallon trash can in front of the stage. And I never mention it till the very end of the message. And here was my call to people. If you have a sin that you're holding against yourself, that Jesus has asked you to let go of, he's taken it away from you. I want you to write that sin on a piece of paper and I want you to walk down the middle aisle and drop it in the trash can. Thousand people in the audience, I thought there would be, I don't know, 25, maybe 50 people come forward. I was wrong. There were over 500 people came forward. And I walked down the steps of the stage and I was just on the front row kneeling and praying and if I'm to be honest, I was kind of, I was very proud of God. I was kind of proud of myself too. And I'm looking over my shoulder at these lines of people and I say, God, like, look at this. This is amazing. And I'm kind of amazing too, all right? Just being honest. And the Holy Spirit said to me, what about you? And I said to the Holy Spirit, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I knew what I was talking about. There was a sin that I had held against myself for years. 
And I said, but what would they think of me? Like, what would the church think of me if I stood up and wrote a sin out and dropped it in the bucket? And the Holy Spirit got snarky. He says, you, you, you're seriously telling me that you care more about what these people think of you than what I think of you? So I got off my knees, I found a piece of paper, I wrote the sin, and I went to the back of the line. And I shuffled forward with everyone else. And in that moment, when I slipped it into the trash can from that moment until now, I'd been free. How long are you gonna stay where you are and not let God liberate you? The more control you try to keep right here, the less control you will have out there. And the more you point to a problem that's another person or a situation, the less you will be able to deal with the one thing that is truly keeping you away from your desired destiny, and it is pride. There's a lot of next steps that we talk about around here. You've probably heard all of them. Getting into a group and serving on campus and tithing and sharing your story and all of them are important next steps. I wanna focus on one today because today on every campus, we're celebrating an opportunity for you to be baptized. And I know that some of you are gonna say, yeah, but it, if I get baptized like, my, my parents baptized me when I was a child. Will that send the wrong message to them? Do you care about their opinion more than God's? Well, or if I get baptized, like I don't, I, don't want, I don't want to have a bad hair day. Do you care about other people's opinion more than you care about God's? Because it is that pride that is the biggest barrier between where you are and where you want to be. Now, I'll, I'll be honest. Some of you aren't ready to be baptized yet because you don't really understand what it is, and that's fair. We want everybody to make an informed decision. So what we do around here is this thing called starting point. Every so often you're gonna hear about starting point. It is a one hour experience that will explain exactly what the gospel is. It will explain who we are as a church and how you can be part of what God is doing here. We want everyone, if you have not been to Starting Point yet, I wanna invite you right now to sign up. It's in two weeks on every campus. You just open up the app and sign up. Or if you don't have the app, just walk outside, find a pastor, they'll help you sign up. This is so important that you are able to make informed decisions. But some of you, you know you're ready to be baptized. You know that there's nothing that you can do to earn a spot in the water. You don't have to be good enough to be baptized. You don't have to pay for it. You don't have to earn it by your morality. It is a gift of God he's offering you today. And if that's you, we're ready for you. You may be watching online and thinking, well, like, are they ready for me? Yeah, you just go put on a pair of pants or a swimsuit, come on down, we're ready for you. You might be watching this on demand two days later or two weeks later or two years later. We're still ready for you. You just text baptism to 72020. We're ready for you. But if you're on a campus right now and God's tugging at your heart, 
How long are you going to let pride be the barrier to the life that you really want? Holy Father, would you move now in the hearing of my friends, of this congregation, this great people of God in this valley, would you move through your Holy Spirit and convict men and women, young people, that this is an opportunity for them to crucify their pride because Jesus was crucified for us. We will die to ourselves and we will be buried in this water and we will rise again free, fully free. For all of those who have a desired destination, I pray that it is the heart of God that is most intoxicating for us. That is, that is the destination we really, truly crave. Would you, God, be faithful 11 out of 10 times as we are obedient 7 out of 7? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go make Jesus famous.